Good morning. Um, Today's reading will be from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 11, and that is on page 1220 of the Church Bibles. So that is page 1220 of the Church Bibles. So beginning at verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Elegant, thank you very much for reading. Let's pray together as we start. Heavenly Father, please do use your word today to help us live the Christian life better and to live it more joyfully too. Amen. When I started supporting Tottenham Hotspur when I was 10 years old, I moved back from Belgium to England, and the first boy I met on my street asked which football team I supported. I said I didn't know, and he said I should support Tottenham because they're really good. Uh, That kid has a lot to answer for. It all started so well. They were actually a pretty decent team back in the early 90s. But in recent days, to be honest, they're not very good at all. Why is that? Well, don't get me started. I mean, firstly, the managers have been pretty useless Secondly, the players just really aren't up to much. Thirdly, the chairman won't invest in any better players. And you put all those things together, and I can tell you, having supported them for 33 years, my resistance is waning, and I'm tempted to take a step back just for a little while until things get a bit better. Why am I telling you that? Because I think when a church goes through bad times we can be tempted to think a little bit like I do about Spurs. Now, I'm not comparing being a suffering church with being a suffering football supporter. I'm not doing that. But I do think that when faced with difficult situations, we can be tempted to think in a similar way. So firstly, we can blame the manager, a.k.a. our church leaders. If only they were doing things slightly differently, we'd all be rowing in the same direction. Secondly, we can perhaps blame the team, in other words, each other. Maybe if we're doing things slightly differently, uh, things uh, would be working out a bit better than they are now. Thirdly, we blame the chairman, a.k.a. God. If I was God, I would not do things like that. You put those things together, our resistance can start to wane, and we just think about taking a step back in our Christian walk, just until things get a bit better, just until the heat dies down a bit. 
Well, we're at the end of Peter's letter written to Christians to help them live and work and navigate a non-Christian world, and they're taking some flack for it. And he's thinking along the same lines, which is why at the very end of his letter, he addresses these four issues to help churches like ours avoid the dangers of falling into those traps now so that we're ready to share in the eternal glory of the church later. Perhaps later in this life, far more likely later in the next. And if you're here this morning, wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, well, I hope that what you hear today will make you think the Christian church is exactly the kind of place you want to be a part of and cause you to want to find out more about Jesus because he's the one the Christian church is seeking to follow. So there are four quick things we're going to look at together this morning. Firstly, a church must be prepared to submit to the authority of its leaders. Take a look down at verse 5 with me, if you would. Verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Submission, one of our favorite words, I'm sure, as long as it's other people submitting to us. Anyway, well, the command here is for those who are younger to submit to their elders. So elders here isn't focusing on old people. Instead, Peter is talking about elders as those who have oversight responsibilities in the church. So that would fit with the verses just prior to these, which was addressing the elders of the church in their role as oversight and shepherds, and also with him starting this verse with the words, in the same way. He's clearly linking the two together. I'm not quite sure why Peter zooms in on younger people here rather than all people. It could be there's an extra danger with younger people, perhaps. They think those in oversight positions, maybe those are a bit older than them. Maybe they're a bit past it. Don't have a whole lot to say to the younger generation. It might be that. Whatever the reason, the command is to submit. And if it applies to those who are most likely to rebel, it clearly applies to everybody. So what does submit mean here? It means allowing the elders of the church to joyfully exercise their role of authority within the church. So it means allowing them to do what the previous verses commanded them to do, which is to shepherd the church willingly and eagerly and to be an example to the church family. It means supporting them in public and in private, not if they're teaching things contrary to the Bible or teaching a lifestyle contrary to the Bible. Of course, it's not saying that. But assuming that they're seeking to follow the mandate of shepherding God's church, we are to support them all the way. It means not looking for ways to criticize them, which, of course, we'll always find because they are not Jesus. They're not in leadership positions in the church because they are perfect. They are there because God has graciously given them hearts willing to serve and gifts enabling them to serve. And they're in those positions because they love us and love the Lord and want to help us in our walk with him. So we shouldn't be looking for ways to criticize them as they go about their God-given jobs. In short, it means submitting to them in heart and mind and deed as we support them in their roles as elders within the church family. How am I doing at that? How are you doing? Well, the last 18 months or so has given us a wonderful opportunity to test ourselves. Mask wearing, service times, in person or Zoom, 
stay open or close, laws versus guidance, to test or not to test, to sing or not to sing. The list goes on. It's probably been quite a stressful time for those in oversight over us. How could they navigate the constantly changing guidance, obeying God, obeying government, being wise, and keeping the whole church family happy? How could they do that and keep any of the church family happy? I wonder how we've responded when decisions are taken that we don't really like very much. Maybe what we've said or who we've said it to. And whether everything that we've done, whether it's public or private, has been there to support our church leaders, to build them up, rather than to tear them down. I think we're part of a wonderful church family here. I've never been part of a more welcoming church family than this one. I think we love and support each other really well, and I think we think really highly of those in oversight over us. But I'm also guessing there might be things we would say or do differently if we could turn the clock back 18 months, which we can't. But what we can do is to ask God for forgiveness where we need it and to ask for his help to do this whole submission thing a bit better. We'll do that together a bit later. And why not grab one of our leaders today or this week and ask them, what is it that we can do to make their God-given role more of a joy for them to do? I reckon that's a conversation they'd be pretty happy to have. A church must be prepared to submit to the authority of its leaders. Secondly, a church must be prepared to be humble towards others. Take a look down at verse 5. Verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Well, if submission is one of our favorite words, I guess humility must be pretty far up the list as well. What does showing humility to one another mean? It means to think of others more highly than we think of ourselves and to think of others more often than we think of ourselves. It's quite an unnatural thing to do. Quite naturally, we think of ourselves a lot. That's why Peter says we need to clothe ourselves with it. We're not born with that inclination. We need to literally put it on. And it's the opposite of being proud. So there's no neutral position here. Either we're proud or we're humble. I think we know what proud means. It's to big ourselves up. Or to be humble is to big others up. One reason we should show humility towards one another is because God will show us favour if we do. Verse 5, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. It's a quote from Proverbs and it basically says, if there are two teams in this world and God is on one of them, you don't want to be on the other one. If God is on one of them, get ready to swap teams. Whereas if God is showing us favour, that's a much better place to be. Why does God oppose the proud and show favours to the humble? Because those who big themselves up and think highly of themselves are probably quite likely not to think too highly of God, and so he's unlikely to respond positively to that. Whereas those who think more highly of others than they think of themselves are more likely to think more highly of God as well, and so of course he's going to respond positively to that. How on earth do we do it? Well, we need to be humble enough to ask God for his help. If we do that, he will most certainly show us favour 
and give us the grace we need to do it. I don't know about you, but I can find it difficult to picture what humility looks like. Surely not, I hear you say. Thankfully, Paul gives us a very helpful way to put some meat on the bones in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Describing Jesus, he says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So humility, Paul says, can express itself in obedience to God. So, for example, when we obey what God says in relation to how we treat one another, that's a mark of humility. So when we love one another, like Peter commanded us to in chapter 1 of this letter, and we do that out of obedience to God, that's a mark of humility. When we put aside envy and slander, as Peter told us to in chapter 2 of this letter, and we do that out of obedience to God, that's a mark of humility. A great way to know whether we're humble or not is to check how well we're trying to obey God in terms of how we treat one another. One thing I know for sure is that we'll need God's help to do this, so why not add that prayer to our prayer diaries? I don't know about you, but I never pray that. I never pray that I would think of God, that I would think of others more highly than I think of myself. I pray for all kinds of other things. I pray for forgiveness of my sins. I ask God for things. I thank him for things. But I never pray that I would think of others more highly than I think of myself. Not because I don't want to, but because I don't think of others enough to pray that I would think of others enough. I definitely need God's help with that. It might be that you do too. Why not add that to our prayer diaries and then watch and see how God changes us together? A church must be humble towards others. Thirdly, a church must be prepared to be humble towards God. Take a look at verse 6. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. What does that mean? It basically means to do what God says. That shows both God and us that he is God and we are not. Whereas if we know that God says one thing and we choose to do another, it's like we're saying we're God and he's not. So why should we do that? Take a look at verse 6 again. That he may lift you up in due time. In other words, ultimately, if we sit under God's rule in this life, we will certainly reap the rewards. It might be in this life, far more likely we'll have to wait until the next. The phrase in due time isn't specific enough. But when God decides the time is right, he will lift us up, he will parade us on his shoulders, and that will be incomparably better than anything we could possibly give up for him in this life. How can we be humble before God? Well, if being humble before God means doing what he says, it could be anything, couldn't it? From obeying the speed limits on the 217, to being generous with our money, to just about anything else. And Peter's addressed a lot of these things earlier in the letter. But I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Take a look at verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. In other, ways, what, in other words, one way of showing our humility before God 
is to cast our anxieties on him. I wonder what we're anxious about this morning. Where do we start? How are our children going to navigate a world that's becoming openly less and less Christian every day that goes by? What happens if our workplaces start cracking down on us at being able to share the gospel with those that we work with? Maybe you've become a Christian recently and you're worried if you tell your friends, they'll stop wanting to be your friends. What happens if you speak up in your theology class at school when they talk rubbish about the Christian faith? Will we be able to keep going as Christians when time gets tough? There are a whole host of things we can be anxious about, aren't there? Peter's wonderfully realistic about that. He doesn't pretend anxiety doesn't exist. He just knows that God knows the outcome of every single one of our situations already. And the same God who got Jesus through his earthly sufferings will most certainly get us through ours as well. And so he lays it out there for us. Will we take all of the things we're worried and anxious about and say to God, I'm really worried and anxious about these things, but even though I don't know the outcome, I do know I don't need to be anxious about them because you are sovereign and in complete control. You love me. You want what's best for me. I know that what is best for me in the long term is exactly what will transpire in my life. And so I'm going to put all the things that I'm anxious and worried about and I'm going to put them in a big bag and give them to you so you can worry about them so I don't have to. That's not, by the way, a kind of let go and let God thing where we're passive and lack action and sit back and wait. I mean, Jesus is the perfect example of casting his anxieties on his Father in heaven and he lived the most action-packed lifestyle you can imagine. And it doesn't mean all our problems will go away. It just means they're sitting on the right shoulders. I think it just means we trust God to accurately and wisely guide us through his word as we act and as we trust him with the outcome. Will we have a go at that? It is such a hard thing to do. Partly because it means that we have to admit that we can't solve all our problems ourselves and that's a pretty hard thing to admit. And partly because it means we have to trust that God will deal with our problems perfectly for us. It is such a hard thing to do. But it is such a good thing to do. Because it helps strengthen our faith as we actually experience that trusting God with our problems is good for us. And it just frees us up to worry a little bit less. And so it gives us a bit more time to think about how we can serve the broader church family. A church must be prepared to be humble towards God. Fourthly and finally, a church must be prepared to resist the devil. Take a look down at verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Wake up, Peter tells us. The devil is an active and formidable enemy, prowling like a roaring lion, looking for somebody to devour. Now, we don't need to be scared of him, 
because our inheritance in heaven awaits us if we're, if we're Christians, guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We do not need to be scared of the devil. But we do need to be awake to the fact that he will take every opportunity to put a spanner in the works of our everyday Christian life, tempting us to sin, perhaps by putting hardship in our way. And we need to resist it. How do we do that? Well, firstly, Peter says, by standing firm in the faith. So that could be doing the things that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the full armour of God, reading our Bibles, praying, constantly reminding ourselves of the salvation Jesus has won for us. If we're not doing that and our faith starts to wobble, we start to wonder why. It's not a big surprise. We need to do those things regularly. And if we do, as James chapter 4 verse 7 promises, the devil will flee from us. But secondly, by remembering we are not alone in resisting the devil. Christians throughout the world are in the same difficult position. That was the case when Peter was writing his letter. His original readers weren't being thrown to the lions. They were living ordinary Christian lives in a culture which didn't like Christianity very much. And so they suffered what we might term low-level persecution, a bit like we might suffer today. We need to remember we're not the only ones. People will be going through at least what we're going through, and quite often considerably worse, just because they are Christians. We're all in this together, Peter reminds us. We at this church, but together with churches throughout the world. When we go through difficult times, because we're Christians, at that very moment, there are millions of believers around the world experiencing exactly the same kind of feelings we might be feeling, whether that's anger or loss or despair or helplessness or anything and everything in between. The devil loves it when we think we're the only Christian going through a particular situation. He loves it when we're tempted to think the rest of the church is doing fine and somehow it's just us who's got the problem. And maybe that causes us to think God doesn't love us very much. Maybe it causes us to think actually God doesn't keep his promises. The devil loves it when we think we're on our own. We are not alone. If you get laughed at at school for being a Christian, you are not alone. You've got a youth group here who will pray with you and encourage you. And there are fellow believers of your age and stage of life throughout the world who know exactly what you're going through because they're going through it too. You are not alone. If you're at university, maybe living away from home for the first time, and you find some of the things that your non-Christian mates get up to actually pretty attractive. And that makes you feel guilty because you know what Jesus has done for you. He's given up his life for you. And yet there are times in the day that you don't actually want to follow every single word that he says. You are not alone. Find a good Christian friend at a local church or the CU and talk to them about it. They will have gone through that too. When we stand together as the family of God, putting on the armour of God, the devil will flee from us. So let's resist him, firm in our faith, thankful for the global church that's sharing in the suffering of Christ too, and longing for the day that all of this is a distant memory.
So what happens if we're a church which submits to the authority of its leaders, is humble towards others, is humble towards God and resists the devil? Take a look at verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Headline, all the wrongs will be made right. After a little while, not sure how long that is, whether it's in this lifetime or next, probably the next. But in God's perfect timing, he will restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. You know, it's like we started here, we suffer for time living in, as a Christian in a non-Christian world, and God will restore us back here. All the wrongs will be made right. But actually, that's not what Peter's saying, because the truth is way better than that. Because God won't just restore us, he will take us to his eternal glory. That glorious inheritance of living in heaven, in his presence forever, him as father, us as his children, living without fear of the past or the present or the future or people or places or our own performance. That eternal glory is what really counts, isn't it? However much we find submission and humility and resisting the devil difficult in in this life, the promise here is that it will be so, so worth it. We know that he'll do it because Christ has gone on ahead of us and we are in him, as Peter tells us. And so as we come to the end of this letter, written to help Christians live and work and navigate a non-Christian world, Be at peace. We don't know every twist and turn our lives are going to take. We really don't. But we know that God will be with us in every one of those twists and turns. And we know the final destination. And that's enough, isn't it? So be at peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for having Peter write this letter to the church 2,000 years ago for us. Thank you for helping us navigate this world where we'll suffer to one degree or another as your people waiting for Jesus' return. Thank you for the wonderful church leaders you've given us here at Christ Church. Please forgive us if we haven't always submitted to them where we've made their role a chore rather than a joy. Please help us submit to them well and honour them in the role that you've graciously given them to shepherd us. Please help us show humility to one another. Please teach us how to think of ourselves less and to think of others more. Please help us rightly humble ourselves before you, knowing that you one day will raise us up higher than we could ever hope or imagine. Please help us remember we are not alone in the Christian life. The whole church family is in this together. And more than anything, we long for the day Jesus returns or calls us home 
knowing that eternal glory with him awaits. Please keep us trusting you until that day, we pray. Amen.